The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. It is opening day as we speak Baseball is back real live. This stuff counts baseball. I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka. TC, so much going on in the game today. How do you feel with it finally being back? You know, I got to talk quick here because as of right now, the Rockies are still beating the Dodgers 4-3. to three. <laughs> The season upset is ready to happen. And it looks like Bellinger popped out. So we're still good. So we're still good. Rockies popped, still up. He popped out. It didn't bop off of Raimel Tapia's love <laughs> over the fence, and he didn't get passed on the base path. Nothing weird happened. It was just a regular old pop-up. Uh, <laughs> so far, so good. So far, so good. Last week, we were graced with some breaking news right before we recorded. Uh, with our own schedules shuffling this week, we got a little bit more of the same. We've had a fortunate run here in this in this short run so far. It's been very fortunate. Yesterday, news comes down that Francisco Lindor has signed long-term with the New York Mets for, what is it, 12 million, uh, 12 years, $341 million. I was really giving the Mets a bargain. Uh, so you see this deal. Did you think it was going to get done all along? Were you sweating it at all? And what is your initial reaction to that contract extension for the Mets and Francisco Lindor, TC? You know, I, I thought that it would happen if only because the Mets have come out and said that they were kind of ready to spend money and they've shown that they're willing to spend money. And if you're going to spend money on somebody who else besides Francisco Lindor. So I'm not shocked that it, that it did happen. I love that the way it does happen. You see like Jeff Passan tweets out at like nine 30. No, no, no progress on the extension talks. So then it's like nine 50. Lindor agrees to an extension, $341 million. <laughs> so I you, uh... you see, you can't always put a lot of stock in those, but actually one thing I will say is it's actually only a 10 year deal, which is interesting. It's actually my, my, I have one friend who was a New York Mets fan. I try not to have any, but I have one. <laughs> and my friend Billy pointed out that 10 years, he doesn't love it. Cause it does make that AAV higher. It yeah. makes that collective bargaining tax bill a little bit higher. So there is that. And I mean, I don't know why they would sign him to 10 instead of trying to make it a 12 year deal or something the way, the way bets, you know, monkey bets and his deal is set up, but Either way, it's a lot of money, and he's a really good player, so everyone should be pretty happy. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny you mentioned that about Mets fans in your life, in your life, and and in anybody's lives. Um, I have a, a you know a group chat friend who's a Mets fan. I have, uh, you know, he's very happy with it. Somebody else in that same chat pointed out that 
these shortstops we've spoken about a couple of times, right? These guys coming up on free agency, even if they can't necessarily play shortstop, they're already kind of at the top of the defensive spectrum. So if they slide down, they're still going to be above average if they get forced into a corner spot somewhere, right? So kind of interesting thought on that. Yeah, and Lindor's bat would play if he had to go to third or something. But, I mean, he'd go to second if he had to go anywhere. And he actually should be able to stick it short. There's not a lot of concerns with him. That's what one of the things that makes Lindor such a safe bet. It makes him one of these guys that you do actually want to pay this kind of money to. He hasn't had a down year. And he his defense is stellar. And he has all the athleticism you would think he needs. I mean, he's still young. He's only 26. Amazingly, he's only 26 years old. So we have yet to see how he's really going to age. But... There aren't a lot of concerns. Yeah, I, I think he's... I had to double-check real fast. I was like, I thought he was 27. He is, but we're really splitting hairs, right? He's a young guy. And uh, I, I don't know. I kind of thought this deal was going to get done all along. I even thought as Cohen teased it out through the week that it was really pretty much done at that point, that maybe like they were figuring out which which I's needed dotting and T's needed crossing and so on. But I I couldn't imagine Steve Cohen having the bravado, despite his status and his financial status, putting all of the information out there. Oh, what should I offer Lindor? Uh, this is what he had for dinner, things like that. I can't imagine doing that if you didn't feel like you had him in the pocket, right? Yeah, and to be clear, it was the T in Tatis that needed to be crossed. That was the, uh, <laughs> the final T that had to be crossed there. Yeah, one, do- $1 million more than Fernando Tatis Jr. made, right? 340 to 341. Lindor, Lindor <laughs> made his point. He's making more money than Fernando Tatis. We got it. You know, part of me wonders if, like, obviously the guy wants to be the highest paid at the point he signs his deal. Any guy in this context, any superstar. But what I really think is curious is, you know, I <laughs> I, I think baseball, baseball writers just love saying it's the richest contract ever signed. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how these things have been working for the guys up top. I know. There's always so many caveats. It's like, it's the largest extension ever signed by a player with four years of service time, less than seven years of service time, who's taller than six feet four, but doesn't play a corner position. Who's under six foot five and a half. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It is. Uh, There is uh, some other really big news going on this week. We've got this week in baseball, obviously, as we do every week, we'll get on that in just a little bit, but the really big news, of course, is Alejandro Kirk making the Blue Jays. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, he made it. He made it. Poor, poor Reese McGuire got DFA'd. Yeah, how about the that? The Pirates. Uh, a job's a job if you're a major league player, I would think, in in Reese McGuire's category. But uh, I don't know. I just thought it was so much fun that Kirk made the team. I don't know. I mean, he didn't start today. Uh, Danny Jansen batted for the bottom of the lineup for the Blue Jays. I'll be interested to see where Kirk slots in and how much playing time he gets. Um, obviously, I think you wrote him up as, as somebody who's quickly becoming a fan favorite, right, oh, at yeah. MLBTR. Oh, yeah. He uh, is. So, I mean, he's, what's not to love, right? Right, right. He, he's the total package and uh, a very full package. And I can't. I, I really hope he, he becomes everything we want him to and that we're dreaming on. Oh, yeah. Uh, there so, were, actually, there were a couple of good roster decisions for opening day. Were there any others that, that jumped out to you? I think the one that was really interesting was uh, Sixto Sanchez with the Marlins. And it's it's not what you think. It's not service time manipulation with him. He had an issue ramping up. He, he had a couple of issues through the preseason, right? And and now he's got shoulder discomfort. So yeah. fingers crossed, knocking on wood, all that. Uh, but that one was a little little bit surprising to me. What about in terms of how, how these moves came across your screen? What surprised you? 
Uh, a couple of good ones. I mean, I, I, this we kind of saw this coming in spring, but it's pretty cool that Jed Lowry is going to be the everyday second baseman for the A's for the third time. I mean, especially after his you know nine game two year stint with the Mets, it'll be cool if he's able to put up another solid season. I like Jonathan India got the uh, second base job in Cincinnati, so now they have five third basemen in the in the lineup, <laughs> which is pretty incredible, really. That they have, yeah. I mean, literally all of their right handed. If you throw right handed you came into the league as a third baseman if you're a Cincinnati Red, which, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> and then Nicky Lopez is the other one that kind of jumped out. You know, people have been saying that they should have demoted him for the last year and a half. They finally demote him. And then like a, a day later, Mondesi gets hurt and they bring him back up to be their everyday shortstop. It's, it's like, well, they proved their point. They proved their point. <laughs> Nicky Lopez, you have, you have stuff to work on, but come on back. Are you happy? We optioned him. Lots of humoring going on. And really, that ties in nicely to our big idea this week, our, our big focus with the Royals. We've talked a lot of Royals. We've talked a lot of a few clubs in particular, Kansas City being one of them. We got an absolute whopper of a quote from Royals GM Dayton Moore in response to a question from Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports, at Hannah R. Kaiser on Twitter. And there is... Something really in particular I want to get to, but let's think about the whole quote in the context of Hannah Kaiser asking about veteran additions and fitting into the Royals' plan to get better, uh, being that they did go out and sign some veterans over the course of the winter, unlike a lot of other teams. Moore's response went this way. He says, I've talked to young GMs in the past, and they've asked me certain questions, and I've said you're never going to win because you're not trying to win now. You have to try to win in all aspects of what you're doing. You've got to win in the draft. You've got to win in player development. You've got to win in the front office. You've got to win in the community. You've got to commit to raise players, to connect with fans, so we ensure that this game is enjoyed by our kids and our grandkids just the way we've enjoyed it. A lot of stuff going on there. Maybe some of it seems like it's a platitude here and there, but he goes on to say, so I just think it's really, really important. The future of baseball depends on all 30 teams busting their butts to put the best team on the field each and every year to inspire people to come to the ballpark. It's that freaking simple. So, uh, yeah, before we even get to the specifics of what he gets saying, you hear something like that from a GM. What is your initial read on that? Uh, That he just called out 23 GMs (laughs) or something (laughs) like that. I mean, it's, it's good talk. You know, we like, we like to see that. We said all winter that it's good to see the Royals trying to win and explicitly trying to win. I mean, the other thing I will say is that there are a lot of different ways to win and to talk about winning in all aspects can mean a lot of different things. I mean, I know that once we get to the major league level, there's a pretty blatant way that winning matters, you know, actually winning. But, you know, as for the rest of it, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. I mean, there is all the talk of, of, you know, you want to have a winning atmosphere and a winning culture and you have to establish that early. And if you don't have that, then it's hard to turn the corner when you're ready to. But I also wonder about the effect of, of telling your team that you're going for it every single year and not getting there. I mean, if you're there every single season, it's like, this is, you know, we're going for this year and you end up with another 84 loss season. Does that wear on you a little bit? And does that, are you still as, you know, gung ho about this competitive atmosphere all the time? I'm not, totally sure i think there is probably a recognition at times that you're at a different place in the in the in the winning cycle 
So you hit on a couple of really big things there. First of all, it seems like you're really addressing maybe the mental aspect of uh, the mental toll of potentially not winning when you say, you know what, we're in this to win. And then you show up and it's really kind of like, it's not that you weren't competitive. It's not that you didn't necessarily win. It's almost like, oh, we like, you know, we're just not in the spot to do this. Like, what do we need? And are we going to get it? Or are we just going to have this talk again? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and Moore has shown that he's willing to go out and get the players. And so that's a part of it is that you can't be all talk and you can't, a lot of GMs will kind of say the right things about where, you know, we're out there trying to compete every day and we're trying to put the best team on the field that we can with our, you know, we have certain restrictions, but we're trying to do what we can to have the best 26 guys out there and trying to win ball games. But, you know, Moore does go out and get players and he's really loyal to the players that he does have maybe too much. So even, but he does, you know, kind of put his money where his mouth is in that, in that sense. And I think the players appreciate it. I think the players do appreciate it in Kansas City. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about some of the guys he brought in, specifically Carlos Santana. Um, he, he also brought in Mike Miner. Uh, Andrew Benintendi came, in, came over from the Red Sox, right? Like really adding guys in, that'll cost money, that are costing money that he didn't necessarily have to. And what I wonder is if what we're discussing right now is the outsider and or fan perspective versus a guy in that room, a guy in that locker room who's like, oh, no, we have legit ball players in here. Like, okay, maybe Santana, Benintendi aren't what they were at their peaks or their career years to this point. But like they're guys who know how to win. They're guys who have been a part of really good clubs. That's really important if you're, you know, Hunter Dozier or you're Jorge Soler or Sal Perez, who we, you know, we heaped with praise for his development and work with teammates and, and being between different camps. So I don't know. Do you think that, that we're maybe looking at it too much from not too much, but from the perspective we have of being maybe outsiders versus guys in the room, do you think they value those moves more than we might as fans? Yeah, I think they probably do. I mean, I've wondered about that because every guy you're bringing in means you have to send somebody out. So there is that kind of clubhouse aspect that I wonder about, but yeah, to your point, I mean, I don't think Michael A. Taylor is sitting around being like, guys, I'm 29. I've never been a starter for a reason. Like, I don't know what we're thinking is going to happen here. Like, <laughs> I think he thinks he can do it. And he thinks he's going to be an above average center fielder. And, you know, maybe he will be, but that's not something he's proven yet at the major league level. And it's going to be one of the tests that the Royals face this year. Absolutely. Which leads me to another little tidbit from this this quote this i'm going in a whopper because i really think it is i think you hit it dead on when you're like you caught out 23 other gms because i think there's a big question about how many teams really are trying to compete uh so you know you hit on this and i'm curious if we can go a little bit more in depth about it in regards to the different kinds of ways that winning can look so you know we have our bona fide contenders we've got our Dodgers, our Padres, our Yankees. We've got the teams who might be settling for, like we've talked about with Cleveland, 80-ish wins, give or take five here or there, right? Depending on how things break through a long, full season. And then we've got the teams who are like, yeah, you guys do this. You roll through your competitive windows. We're going to try to be there when it closes and we can open it for ourselves. So how would you kind of delineate the different ways winning looks right now through Major League Baseball. Does anything jump out of at, at you? Does any particular team 
really jump out at you in a special way in terms of what they're trying to do compared to others when it comes to what winning is, looks like, or even means? I mean, the Royals definitely do jump out as being one of these teams that aren't predicted to be, aren't projected to be at the top of the standings, and they're still going for it. The other team is the Padres. The Padres seem to have a real understanding of what it takes to win, to like to guarantee a winning season. I mean, the White Sox have a great roster, top to bottom, but maybe less so at the bottom, right? And we've already seen mm-hmm. Eloy Jimenez has gotten hurt. Now all of a sudden they're trying Andrew Vaughn in left field. They didn't maybe make sure to fill in those back spots the way the Padres did. The Padres went 10 deep in the rotation. They got a couple of utility guys who could be starters. They really did their best to make sure, hey, we're not going to be shorthanded this year. We're going to have a couple of injuries, and we're going to be able to fill in. That means we have some guys who are starter capable who are going to be on the bench in the beginning. We're going to keep them involved, and they're going to be glad to be here because we're going to be winning ball games, and we're going to be finding a way to get them in. And by the end of the season, no matter what happens, we're going to be there playing in the postseason. Yeah, I really like that idea that, you know, of course there's the adage that winning cures everything, right? Winning cures all ills. Right. But I think, it does, I think it really does drive home the point that when the guys are on the team, they're in the clubhouse, they're on the field, if they are winning, they're winning. I don't know how anybody can really gripe unless, like, they've been totally discarded and the winning's happening almost in spite of them, right? Uh, but, I, you know, even something you said earlier in, in a previous episode about teams having the superstars, right? You mentioned the White Sox in this light. They've got the stars. They've got the hard parts. They've got Lucas Giolito as a 26-year-old legitimate ace. Teams don't have that. And then they didn't really do anything to assure their outfield. Like, now, now you're hoping Adam Eaton and Adam Engel are healthy and you're hoping Andrew Vaughn doesn't hurt himself playing out of position like perhaps Jimenez did. So... I don't know, how would we grade out a team like the White Sox in the scope of this date and more comment when it comes to co- competing? Do you think they've done everything they can? Or is it really like, no, they just look good this year and they probably have another step or two to take? There are a couple of things that I would touch on there. The first thing that like, I don't know if it's a strategic decision on their part or if it's a, you know, being cheap or not wanting to spend those extra couple million or wanting to save a couple million for in-season acquisitions. It might just be that, you know, as we talked about with, you know, when you have the guys in the room, you value those guys as people more, you value them as personalities more, and you maybe overvalue them as players at times. So it might just be that the White Sox really believe that Adam Engel is a first division starter in the outfield, and they'll they'll be totally fine if he's the guy that they believe that they're going to be okay if Lurie Garcia ends up starting 70 games in left field. I don't have that same opinion, but... I don't want to say, I don't want to call them out for necessarily for not going for it, but they either aren't going for it or they're miscalculating. Yeah. But there's, but there's, there's room to improve there either way. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting delineation, whether they, you know, whether we assess them as having not fully gone for it, or if we really assess them as they think they're doing it, but they probably miscalculated. Right. Well, cause you know, here's another situation. Uh, the New York Mets trade away a couple of prospects who aren't going to have an impact at the major league level to get an elite closer and a Hall of Fame second baseman who they think might make the team better, right? They trade for Robinson Cano. They trade for, Ed, for Edwin Diaz. Are they better? Are they better than the Mariners? Yeah, they won more games for sure. And mm. here we are multiple years later. They're still winning more games. 
but the Mariners are going to be in a better place. Like the Mariners, you know, quote unquote, won that trade. So when right. Dayton Moore says you had to win in every aspect, like, yeah, for sure. But what does that mean? Like the, the Mets won from an on-field perspective so far, but most people believe that the Mariners won that trade in the long term. You have to have an understanding of where your ball club is at and what's, what's reasonable. You're not just building a 25 man roster. You're building a whole organization, a whole, a whole system. You know, the way you look at the Rays, the way the Rays have a, a development system that is continually churning out professional ball players. You have to do that. You can't start in triple a there. You can't start at the major league level. That's gotta be something organizational. So that's gotta be something that goes all the way through the organization. Absolutely. And as we're speaking, I mean, I, we're going to interject with this. Um, Ozzy Albies just got thrown out at home on a sack fly attempt. That was very shallow in center field in the Atlanta, uh, Philadelphia game. Um, just a great player. You're going to see it come up on the highlight reel, I think, or on the on the summaries is throughout that, the is course. Is Hazley? Hazley throwing him out? I think it was. Adam Hazley starting right. in center field after he got healthy. Uh, and it, it was, you know, it was a very shallow play. Alves comes in hard head first. Romuto makes the tag. And it was, that is a bang, bang play that is going to fire some people up for opening day. In regard to In regard to the Mets and the way they made that trade, I think part of the sentiment with that deal is that a guy like Brody Van Wagenen as their GM at the time, one, we could very clearly question his motives in trading for a former <laughs> client, right? right? He did a lot of weird stuff with former clients who then became employees. And uh, two, what we really could look at it as the way a lot of people looked at it, that he didn't really follow up that win-now move with other win-now moves. It was almost like, here's this aging Robinson Cano. Here's, uh, here's Edwin Diaz, who is awesome, but relievers are fickle and weird. Happy birthday, Merry Christmas, um, all the holidays to you, you Met fans. This is everything we've got. And they just paused there. And, it, you know, the team kind of, their performance reflected that, right? That that wasn't the final move, or maybe shouldn't have been, but was. And it didn't really get them where they wanted it to be. It was for a time. See, that's the thing. They fell out of contention. And then in July, they traded for Marcus Stroman, which was so bizarre at the time because like yes stroman had two had a year and a half left on his deal but stroman was easily the top arm available on the market there weren't a lot of pitchers available and the mets weren't in it they did not seem like they were going to be close enough to make a run they were close enough to conceivably get back into it but they were pretty far back it was a move for the next season but again it's like a little bit too little too late why didn't we make this move Six months ago, at this point, we might want to be reconsidering where we're at right now instead of trading for a pitcher for, you know, nine months ahead of time for when we're really going to want him. Absolutely. And while it makes sense now that he is in the fold again, at least for this year, I like the the sense of, boy, was it really quite the right move? Uh, it, it makes me think of one of my favorite moments from The Simpsons, Homer deep fries his shirt and he says see marge i told you they could and she says uh in response i didn't say they couldn't i said you shouldn't so i wonder if, yeah. you know, i wonder if that was kind of the what, how we could best describe the mets in that moment um a quick note on the on the white Sox, they do have interesting guys on that team like your main mercedes made the team right and he's a guy who's like 28, but can absolutely mash the ball, but doesn't really have a position. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of opportunities he gets. Uh, everybody's kind of curious what Nick Magical will do. The One of the top picks a couple of years ago out of college for the White well, Sox. One of our primo and, like, uh, short guys, one of our primo little guys. Yeah. 
Yeah, he and he that's what he kind of brings, this aura of like, oh, is it another little guy who's going to pop? And it's like, well, I don't know. He might hit for a high average, and he might steal some bags, but wow. it's going to be an empty average. Yeah, you're right. So they promoted Mercedes and Zach Collins. So they have two backup catchers who probably shouldn't really be catching. Yeah. And then, you know, backing up the best catcher in the in the – in the league, in Yasmani Grandel, I kind of really like that move. Two bat first guys who you can put at DH or first base or move around. But Grandel is going to be the main guy back there. So good on them for giving those guys opportunities. I mean, yeah, Mercedes is 28, Collins 26. It's kind of not now or never, but it's good to see him get opportunities. For sure. And I think they'll be an interesting club to watch just because interesting roster construction can go either way really right it can be suddenly fascinating or suddenly like oh why'd you do that uh so i I don't know i feel like you know some people in that wide open al central are picking the white Sox. i have not i I was actually just toying with some picks for divisions and awards this this morning and uh, you know i still see i think minnesota coming out i i think just the evolution of kenta maeda is enormous and i don't know that that the White Sox have the pieces that fit together well enough to, to pull this off right now. And in the scope of, of what we're talking about here, really, in, in terms of pulling together a team as comprehensively as possible to win, I think they really are a good example of, like, what does winning really look like? A question that seems simple, but like you're saying, we have to consider three years down the road, like the Mariners did with that that Cano and Diaz deal, where they got back Jared Kelnick. Um just so many moving parts when it comes to what winning looks like. Does anybody else, any other organization stick out in terms of what winning looks like to them when we consider that it's really like a layered, nuanced question, even though we might not want it to be? In a positive light? <laughs> Any light. Well, I mean, the Cubs are certainly disappointing right now and following the same tradition as the Red Sox. I mean, the Cubs have a... $144 million payroll now or something like that. I mean, the Cubs are a significant market. They should be paying the luxury tax. They should have a, you know, $220 million payroll and they've kind of cut it way back. I mean, granted there's the, you know, everything that's happening. I get it. There's the pandemic that they didn't have any revenue last year. I had less revenue, but their estimated payroll for this season is 160 million. They should be well above that. And the Red Sox, we saw the same thing. Trading Mookie Betts, you know, I'll go back to, I just don't think that was a real bummer of a move. Betts was a guy, he was the face of that city. He was a, a star black athlete in Boston, a city that hasn't had a lot of black athletes at the center of their sports world. And he was a great person for that city. He was still young. You could still build your next team around him. And they, they traded him and it was a philosophical move. I think, you know, from, you know, former Rays GM who's kind of worked it worth or who's kind of used to dealing in that, kind of strip it down style. But I do think that at a certain point, you want to put a product out there on the, on the field that your fans can root for, right? Like, yeah, it's probably smarter to trade bets and get some pieces back, but your fans want to watch Mookie Betts play. Like they'd rather watch Mookie Betts play on a 78 win team than, than watch Alex Verdugo playing on a, on a, you know, 70 win team. I don't know how many games they won last year. There weren't even that many games. So they shouldn't have been 70, but, but yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I do wonder if the GMs are, are getting a little too clever at times. I mean, you want to go to the ballpark still. You still want to see Mookie Betts there, right? I mean, I still want to see – I don't know that 
Signing Bryant and Baez and Rizzo is the best thing, but I want to see them there. I don't know that Arietta is the best guy for the rotation. I know that he's probably not, but I still want to see him. I'd love to go, go to the park and see Arietta pitch again. I think there is some value there. Yeah. that. Oh, man. I, I love that you're describing it in terms of guys you want to see. I mean, we did hit on in, in recent episodes how, like, the Phillies probably hung on too long, right? And you don't want to see a team rope themselves into guys who they're hanging on to for too long. But there is, like, really an appeal. So and I, I think what you're describing here, even in terms of the way the Red Sox are building and uh, Heim Bloom with – I mean, I think even today he said there will be a time when he needs to make an aggressive win-now mood, but now is not the time. And it's like, well, if if not now, when? And what are you trying to build up? Are you going to go farm? Are you going to look to to pivot and move some of those farm guys for a big big star when that time comes? If you do that, are you just recycling where you were with Mookie Betts years ago and, and ending up in the same position and just having saved uh, as ownership a few dollars in the meantime? A lot of, like you're saying, too, maybe bordering on too cute, maybe um, doing too much of a dance to really get to the same place that has a much more direct route. So when it comes to what Dayton Moore of the Royals said, that you have to kind of inspire people to get into the ballpark, are you talking about star power? Is that something that draws you there? You're like, oh man, like Chris Bryan is there, sweet. Javi Baez is there, awesome. Um, Anthony Rizzo, oh man, like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to carve out some time. I'm going to make a few games. Yeah, for sure. That's a big thing that gets me to the the ballpark, especially because, you know, when I go to games, typically I'm going with my family and my family or my extended family who's in in town. And they don't tend to be baseball people, right? So I want to be able to show them Juan Soto when I go to the Nats games here at, at Nats Park in D.C., you know. Juan Soto can appeal to them. They can understand that story. They've heard his name before. They know, if they know anything about baseball, they know who he is. It's harder to sell them on, you know, uh, Josh Harrison and, and what Josh Harrison's value is to that team as a versatile sure. veteran piece who's, who can, you sure. know, do enough at second base or, or start on Castro's origin story with the Cubs. Like those, are, those stories are just a little bit harder to sell. You, I think for those, for those other people, you know, my family, they do love, going to the, to the ball field they like going to games but they aren't there for the baseball like they'll walk around they'll do all sorts of stuff i'm like in my seat i'm like hey we got to get there 45 minutes early so i got time to get a hot dog and get my seat and be there for the first pitch because i'm not moving after that yeah and i want to see i want to see the end of bp i want to see how guys are looking i want to see who's out there if anybody is missing who shouldn't be absolutely i think there's a big allure to that you know, in the vein that you're talking about when it comes to star power, maybe not going with fans who appreciate the game the same way you do. You know, that I have a brother who um, one of his brightest baseball memories was taking non-baseball fans to see Cliff Lee pitch, right? And just seeing like Cliff Lee carve up a lineup. Like what, oh, yeah. what a joy to be able to explain Cliff Lee and how good he is at the park. Uh, I think there's that aspect of it. I think there's definitely the other side where it's like, okay, we're going to be there at this time. I'm going to be in my seat. If you guys get up, that's fine. Try not to walk in front of me during an at-bat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think star power is a huge draw, which is why, like, I happen to just have written up Bryce Harper for something at Baseball Prospectus this week. It dropped today. Today's Thursday. So by the time you guys hear this, it'll all be on the internet. You can go and find it. But I think there's a lot of allure to Bryce Harper, and I mean, you saw this too as, as a Nats fan, um, that maybe I'm experiencing the same things, where he is just kind of this magnetic personality who does want 
the best players, who wants those players to have their best games every game. And not like a in an in their face kind of way, but in like he's cheering for them kind of way. And that's so endearing when the star player is taking that tact, right? When he's in the background, when he's basically photobombing or or sneaking into to interviews with JT Romuto and saying, sign JT, <laughs> sign JT, right? So endearing. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that you saw with, with Harper too through Washington? I mean, it was in 2010, you know, when he first came up, it was, he was magnetic. He was so fun to watch. Like the ballpark in those days, it was amazing. It was amazing to see him then. In the last couple of years, not as much. You know, he, he lost that. It was tough for him, I think. There was so much media buzz about him going somewhere else, and it wasn't of his own doing. Like, he wasn't this guy who was saying that he was going to go play for the Yankees, but that was the that was the narrative around him. And I think he kind of got a, a bum deal ultimately. And for various reasons, he kind of had to leave Washington to recapture that sense of himself, that that to recapture that love of the game that he has. And you can see the difference in Philadelphia. And he said that's why he signed for 13 years. He wants he doesn't want there to be any doubt. He's there. He's a Philly yeah. guy now. And I love that. I think he's he's back to being that guy who's like really fun to watch. And he's one of the reasons you you do go, go to the stadium. He's one of the reasons you turn on Philly's games. Absolutely. And just like we, we haven't had a chance to get too many moments from Bryce Harper in a Philly's uniform, but uh, the the walk off grand slam he had against uh, your your uh, even your I Cubs, right? Last was that, a couple of, I yeah. I, <laughs> that was on vacation. Um you know, what was that, two seasons ago, uh, that kind of thing. Today, he shows up at the park opening day. He's got, like, fanatic uh, cleats on, but not just, like, fanatic, Philly fanatic design on it. It's, like, actual stuffed animal limbs of the fanatic coming off of his cleats to start in, in warm-ups. So I think star power and personality really does make such a huge difference. That's why, like, people are talking about Lindor. And, you know, I don't think I've ever heard Lindor called Mr. Smile more than I have in the last week, <laughs> his whole career. Yeah, for sure. that's, uh, maybe it is that's one of the reasons you're happy to build around because, you know, people love him. He's going to be fun to watch. So we're talking in terms of what Moore is saying draws people to the park. Um, we hit on a, on a really kind of big thing, like something that is hard to do, something that's hard to, to grow up with or raise up. And uh, in terms of developing a major star talent, and there's also uh, acquiring it, like we're talking with Harper or other signings, teams retaining guys, all that kind of thing. Uh, Lindor, you know, your Rizzo's, all of those players. Uh, one other thing that sticks out to me in terms of inspiring me to the ballpark is really being able to get there and sit behind home plate. And now, granted, this doesn't happen as much in major league games because of the cost, the sheer cost, prof, uh, you know, this sheer... I was going to say, you're, you're sitting behind home plate? No, we sat very high above home plate. <laughs> okay, uh, that's yeah. usually where we go in the major league games. But there's so there are a few minor league teams around, and I love sitting behind home plate at the minor league games because one, the atmosphere is just so much more relaxed, right? It's so laid back. Uh, there are people there genuinely to have fun. They're not like ride or die. Their day is ruined if the team doesn't win. It's like, all right, well, we'll be back next week, and it'll be affordable and great. Uh, and there will be silly things in, in between innings and dogs will run out bats <laughs> between their teeth and so on. A lot of enjoyment gets uh, gets to me that way. But part of the appeal of sitting behind the plate, that's where all the scouts sit, right? Yeah, yeah. So we kind of, uh, my wife and I, we lucked into a situation a couple of years ago where I think I've mentioned it. We live near-ish Trenton where uh, the former AA Yankee team was, the Trenton Thunder. 
And we ended up sitting uh, next to the White Sox scout who was in on the deal that brought Yoan Moncada to Chicago. No and he's telling us all about it. He's the area scout. So he comes in and he, he was watching uh, the Portland Sea Dogs, Boston's affiliate. He's watching the Yankees affiliate, the Thunder. You know, it's like double duty at that point for a scout. And he's saying, you know, that makes the trip so much easier. And uh, he, was, he said when that deal came up for Chris Sale, they come to him as the area scout and they say, who do we need from the Boston system to really give up Chris Sale to the Red Sox? And he says, you need this guy, this guy, this guy, or this guy. He said, you need to get at least two, push for three. And Moncada was one of them. I mean, he's the big name player, really, that came over from that trade. But just things that you don't get sitting anywhere else, things you don't get if you are going to the big league park and looking for star power, right? Because those kinds of guys, scouts, team personnel, they are like roped off. They're in very particular seats. They are not in a setting where they're more willing to engage. They might not be the chattiest personality at that point. And so for me, part of what inspires me to the park, like Dayton Moore is saying, or as he said to to Hannah Kaiser, is just accessibility, right? Like I think that's one of the number one things fans want is they want to be as part of the game as they can be, as much of a part of the game as they can be. Um, so based on all of that, is, is there anything that sticks out about you with maybe a minor league game experience or a lower pressure experience from a major league game that sticks out in terms of what lures you into the park? Well, I will say I do like all the bells and whistles that come with the minor league game. And you get some of them at the major league level and it is gimmicky. I'll give you that. But I'll say, you know, I last year or before last year, so 2019, I went to a, a number of games with my niece who was uh what was she two or three at the time right so doesn't really follow the game very much but she loved going to the games for all those other things she was always asking where are the presidents where's screech she wants to see the president's race she loves eating peanuts and throwing the shells on the ground like she loves just seeing so many people she doesn't go very many places where there are forty thousand people all walking around wearing the same shirt for some reason you know she's like it's this whole new thing for her and i i like that there are other ways to engage her there to kind of foster her love of baseball when I know it's baseball is not going to be the thing that she's going to fall in love with right away. She's not going to like, it's just not that game where she's not going to, it's not the thing that really she's like appealing. It appeals to her because it appeals to me, but it doesn't, you know, she's not watching baseball and being like, Ooh, look at that spin rate. Like that's amazing. <laughs> you know, look at him, look at him tunnel that slider off that, off that four steamer. Holy cow. You know? So part of the way, one of the ways you get that long-term love of the game is to just love going to the ballpark. And I think those gimmicky kind of things, they're great for kids and they're great for, you know, people who aren't maybe into the, you know, baseball minutia. And for teams that aren't competitive, Ooh, yeah. right? Like, you know, you grow up with a team that's not competitive, like the Phillies were in the early 2000s and the late 90s. And, but you get to interact with the players because they have an accessible autograph spot. Like, whoa, like, holy, holy crap. That, you know, that's, I can't tell you how many various autographs we have that would really appear on a Let's Remember Some Guys <laughs> segment. Um, but that, I think, was such a draw for us that, like, these guys are there and they're right in front of me. And, like, they took my card and, like, they, they borrowed it. They made it a point to borrow a pen from somebody else so they could sign my thing. Like, how cool is that? You know, Jim Eisenreich was that guy for me. I, I was, you know, like I was in the position your niece was. I like baseball because my brothers like baseball. My family like baseball. 
uh, Jim Eisenreich had a really interesting you're like, career. You're such a great I, pinch hitter. I, I love I love pinch hitters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just lefty off that the was bench. what I was That's doing. My favorite. <laughs> well, that you know what was so great was that he was so nice to kids who were who showed an interest, right? And so um, we've done this a couple of times where we talk about the nitty gritty business aspect, where we deliberately act or speak cold and, and uh, objectively, objectively. But the subjective moments that are really the things that can kind of dig their claws into you and, and bring you to the park and still kind of keep you there. As you grow, obviously, that looks like different things. As I grew, I went to the park with my brothers and we had season tickets to the Phillies when they were uh, in the middle of their run. And, you know, it's it's tailgating. It's sitting in 98 degree weather with uh, humidity that makes it feel like 115. Um and sweating together, sweating it out, right? Even, you know, a couple of years ago, my wife and I, we went to Cincinnati as a, as a joke. This started out as a joke. <laughs> I said, you know what would be really fun for my birthday is if we went to see a Reds game in Cincinnati where they're giving out a fun, Funko Pop figure of Eugenio Suarez. And then we went oh, yeah. and it was awesome. A and joke it was, vacation. It was... <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I mean... It, it was amazing for that, uh, but it was amazing because it was god-awful heat, and we, uh, if you're not familiar with that area in Cincinnati, you can go all over very accessible city, very accessible bar park area that, you know, we ended up at some bar or brewery across the street because it was too hot to sit in. We were like, we're going to get sick. We don't want to ruin this great vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, right, like things change as we grow, and I think... Dayton Moore really hit on it. Like, that's why Hannah, Hannah Kaiser, she said, I got way more than I bargained for with this question. <laughs> and, you know, at the, the very end of the quote where Moore says, it's that freaking simple. We've talked about a lot of different ways that winning might look. We've talked about it from personal to intrapersonal to interpersonal for individuals, right? And different age groups. That said, if we just step back and we really process what it is to win at baseball on whatever level or capacity. Is it really that simple, TC, to just decide it and go that path? I'd like to think it is, but I, I really don't think it is that simple. I think it's, I mean, just take all the things that we've talked about today and all the different ways that, you know, the, that you can get a win at the ballpark. It's not all from what's happening on the field. And there are, I think it's actually really rather complex. Now, I, I, it's not that I disagree with Dayton Moore. I just think that like there are there are a lot of different ways to win, and that it's not as straightforward as we need to be spending money. I mean, just I'll just tell one last story because I, I write about this. I've written about this numerous times. My my mother-in-law here in D.C. loves Michael A. Taylor. I, I talked about him earlier a little bit disparagingly, and so I apologize. But my mother-in-law loves Michael A. Taylor, and lots of mothers in the DMV area love Michael A. Taylor. And it's so bizarre to me because it was like, you know, what is the deal with Michael A? Like, he's fine. He's like their fourth, fifth outfielder, but he's the guy who's been, who, who spent five years with this team. He was one of the longest tenured guys by the end of his term here. He's really nice, really unassuming. And they watched him play. They kind of watched him grow up. So like, yes, the star power does get us to the field, but sometimes it's other things. Sometimes it's just that they've been watching Michael A for a long time. And they like him and they want to see him succeed. So I don't know, to me, that's not very simple at all. Like it's pretty complicated. And the psychological reasons that Michael A became kind of a fan favorite here, 
you know, it's a little bit of, you know, Stockholm syndrome, syndrome kind of deal where he's just, he's been here a while and they've seen him more and they gotten to know, to know him more and there's value in, in that too. And I think that ties into why they want to sign Salvador Perez long-term, but so I, I think the spirit of what he says is, is true. You need to win whatever that means. I don't think that necessarily means signing Carlos Santana. I think those, I mean, I, I'm glad they made that move, but I mean, you know, I don't know that that necessarily necessitates free agent spending if that's his point, but I do think that it's that simple. You need to be making an honest effort to, to, to show your fans that you're trying to have a good organization, not just five years from now, but now. Right. An honest effort. You're talking about that. You're talking about the spirit of his sentiment is absolutely correct. And as you were talking, it really made me think of something from uh, a book called The Tiny MBA from Alex Hillman, who founded, uh, co-founded a, a co-working space in Philadelphia and, uh, that's pretty, pretty renowned through the co-working world. So Alex Hillman wrote this book, and it's a book of various tweets uh, and business advice. And one of his things that he says, uh, Alex, I, I love following him because he, he is just a, uh, an upfront person who is present. And one of his things was every problem is a people problem, right? So when you got, have a guy like Michael A in the community, you don't know he's going to be there in five years. But what you know is that he's there now and you love seeing him every game, right? Every yeah. game he gets in there, it really means a lot. Yeah. And that is winning in the community. That is building a team, a spirit that moves toward a culture of winning that can ultimately maybe get to that promised land in a, in a magical year when everything else falls right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally right. So I don't know. I'm getting warm and fuzzy. I have to be honest with everyone about it. Um, opening day. This conversation, right? This conversation, uh, opening day in general, has that regenerative context, right, of being in spring, of, of hope springs eternal. Uh, but mostly after the last year we've all had, year plus, we're still having. Uh, and seeing, especially the last couple of days, some of the hype videos come up, right? Um, I'm sure every team has put one out there. But man, like, just phenomenal, I think, to be able to have these conversations. Uh, and I'm really happy that Dayton Moore was willing to say that stuff because it matters. Look at us. We're, we're babbling yeah. on about all these wonderful connections we've made. It's uh, true. Oh, I mean, so true. But for every hype man, you have to have the guy who settles you back in, gives you that cold brush of reality, right? Welcome, welcome to Washington. Yeah. Right? Second year in yeah. a row. COVID outbreak on opening day or the day before opening day. We don't know who the players are involved yet, but game one already canceled. You know, the issues, game two, game right? issues like, are still not real. playing tomorrow, not playing tomorrow either. These things are still happening. So, you know, yeah, it's great that some of us can get to the ballpark, but not everybody, <laughs> you know, a couple people at a and, time. Let's keep those limits. And if they, sh if they could, doesn't mean you should, right? right exactly. <laughs> you know, you got to consider your context. There you go. Um, and on that note, right, we do have our first cancellation. Such a bummer to lose uh, Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer matchup on opening night. I know. Right? The primetime game. I know. And DeGrom is killer on opening day. He's like, his numbers on opening day are insane. He has like one and run the last three opening days or something. I was pumped for that. And the Mets have what? Like half a run? And he's, <laughs> he's gotten a no decision in those games. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, Lindor, um, it's like, here's your $341 million. Now you've got two days yeah. off. Now you're good. Go home. Yeah. Yeah. Think about how you might spend it. Yeah. 
Uh, and we don't know who the players are, like you were saying, but what we do know is that there might be three right now and possibly a fourth. And Saturday opening the season for those two teams is really optimistic at this point, right? It's hard to say, oh, we're going to play Saturday when you don't even know how many cases there are. You're still doing contact tracing, like very much reality balancing the scales in this moment and something it's difficult to be aware of. How do you process that where it's like we have to we have to process this. We cannot avoid it. What do you make of that, TC, when it's like, wow, we've got all these great feelings, these great conversations. Also, these issues are still very real. So, like, I don't know. I guess what I'm really asking is how does this all come out and wash? How do you feel about baseball happening right now? Well, it's a 162-game season. It's going to be a long season. There are going to be these things that come up. Just like every season, things happen. I do think that people are encouraged generally to see life still happening, to see baseball coming back in the spring. You know, we need things to look at. <laughs> you know, it's not just the news all the time. Like, you know, we are coming out of it. The You know, people are getting vaccinated. There is, by the end of the season, we should be in a much better place. But for now, there are going to be these complications. I mean, for the players who tested positive, they're going to be out at least 10 days. And then you have to do the contact tracing. And anyone who's affected by contact tracing, they have to be out for at least seven days. So, you know, these guys were on a charter plane together, you know, except for Scherzer, who, you know, Scherzer drove back with his family. But, you know, the team was together on a plane. And, and contact tracing is going to end up trapping a lot of these guys. And it's going to be, I mean, in some ways, it's good that the AAA season got delayed for a month. You can kind of see why this was maybe a good decision now, because it's going to be, we don't know how many people the Nats are going to have to call up from their alternate site. It's going to be a similar thing to last year where teams are just kind of working with these, you know, B team squads for a while, but you know, the Marlins and Cardinals both made the playoffs last year. They both made it work. The nationals are going to, they're going to put baseball players out there. It's going to keep happening. You know, life goes on. I don't know if we sat down tonight and expected to have such an existential conversation. (laughs) Uh, but here we are, and now I'm really just sitting with it as we have it. And I guess life goes on is really the takeaway here is that there is good and there is bad, and we are all, we are going to see how the, the coin lands. Uh, it's almost like every day it might land a different way, right? Um, because even you mentioned the Cardinals and the Marlins making the playoffs. The Phillies didn't, and their their schedule was messed up in part because of the Marlins right. outbreak. And you, know, you wonder what that looked like on top. Like, what a pressure to put on a bullpen. What a pressure to put on a team in April who's been ready to go for this for so long. And now we're playing the waiting game again. Um, boy, what what a thing to sit with, really, as, as opening day comes. Really packing about as much punch as possible, given our context and what we've built up to at this point. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about a few teams here. I want to run a rule by you. We can move into this week in baseball at this moment. I want to run a rule by you with extra innings, with the runner on second coming out right away and being there. It's already had an impact on opening day. The Yankees lost their game to the Blue Jays because of this rule, or at least in part because of it. The Phillies just topped Atlanta in a similar context in extra innings. Uh, is that why you were screaming? We'll see- I, I, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll cut that in post. No one will hear it. Uh, you know, this is a rule that looks like it's going to make a difference right away in a full-on season, a full 162. How do you feel about the extra runner rule knowing that it's already making an immediate impact? I love it. 
it's drama. It's dramatic. I love it. I love watching action in games now. It's this little change. There, It's the novelty effect, but I'm all about it. Yes, it changes things, but it doesn't... I don't think it gives an advantage one way or the other. It's not like only the visiting team gets it. No, they both get it. It changes it, yes. But it pushes the action. It means you don't want to miss the 10th inning because things are happening right away. And that's not the way action innings have always been in baseball. With most sports, you know, you finish in a tie. Now it gets exciting. That's not the way it's been in baseball. It's been for a while. At times it's like, okay, now we got to buckle up a little bit. This could go on forever. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. When it comes to the 10th inning, there always seems to be a bit of a hesitance where it's like, we can't quite go for it all at once because we might be here a while. And now we might not be, yeah. right? We can't miss the 10th inning. It. We can't be like, oh, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. I, don't know, I didn't think I would be, but at the end of the day, I find myself tuning into those games. I want to see them. So I, for that reason, I think it's good. I think I agree. I think it, it runs along the track of... Um, baseball being such a game of stodgy pureness right where it's like well maybe we can afford to change some things maybe like maybe we shouldn't make a guy like fernando tatis jr apologize for hitting a home run when the team has a big lead you know things like that i don't think that that kind of statement or sentiment is very far off from embracing the extra runner rule it might be chaos but maybe baseball needs a little chaos right maybe if we hold on tightly to the way we feel it should be we should also let go Lightly in the way it's coming at us now. I, I'm okay with the extra inning rule, I think. Talk to me in a week, a month, two months. <laughs> Maybe I'll feel differently. But like you're saying, I think it's great that it pushes the action along. I don't think that the game is necessarily too slow. But that's not to say it can't use more action. And as we get it, I don't know. who Who's going to turn it down in the big picture, right? You, you talk about big picture. You talk about being able to tune into more games. And having a vested interest, like, oh, man, they've got it's a 10th. They've got a guy on. I got to see this, right? I think that's a good move. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, extra inning games have not always been must-see action. But, you know, if there's overtime in basketball, I want to see it. If there's overtime in football, I want to see it, in part because overtime is a signal that this is where the game is going to be decided. It's happening right now. Like, the, this is the, the peak of drama. One team is about to win. One team is about to lose. Either It could go either way. Baseball has had more of a slow burn effect where you're like, you know, it's probably going to end in the 11th or 12th inning. We're going to have some kind of, it's going to be a real slow burn. It's not that way anymore. And, uh, you know, most of the criticism I hear about this particular rule is that it's so gimmicky and it is so gimmicky, but I don't care. Baseball needs some gimmicks. <laughs> like let's do it. Let's have a little, a few more gimmicks. If it doesn't change the, the, the constitution of the game, if it doesn't change it at its core, which I don't think this does, then let's go for it. It just pushes the action action along. It makes the extra innings makes the extra innings different, which I think it which I think it should. I think that they should be different. Absolutely. I don't know that there's another game with overtime like you were saying that runs so similarly to standard time in a game like baseball has for so long. I think it's really I, I think it's a, a net positive. And like you're saying, who cares if it's a gimmick? It's there, and if it's there and we're there, we're like. It could be worth tuning into. It could be really worth kind of embracing along the way. Uh, things that we don't want to embrace this week in baseball, all of the injuries Ugh. happening throughout the Ugh. game, right? We've, we've, that's, that's the appropriate response. You know, we've, who all is on this list? We've hit on Adalberto Mondesi with an oblique strain. Uh, George Springer and Anthony Santander have also had oblique issues. 
Springer's on the IL start, so PLP and FBL for us. That's kind of a bummer uh, for the podcast league here at, at the site. Uh, Santander has not been on IL, but that kind of scares me. I feel like he could end up there. Uh, Trevor Rosenthal. Rosenthal. I was finally all in on Trevor Rosenthal. I even tweeted about it, which I never, I don't tweet very much, (laughs) but I was all on Trevor Rosenthal has been in my life since 2012. I've hated this man for quite some time. The Cardinals closer. (laughs) I hated him. And then he comes and he's pitching for the Nats the season. I'm watching every single Nats game and he's a disaster. He's an ERA literally over 20. And yet like his stuff is still electric. And I keep thinking, man, if he can put it together, he's going to be great. Now I'm all in on him. I'm like, I, I wrote a piece for uh, trade rumors about reviewing the, the A's off season. And the more I was writing, I was like, man, they got a steal here. Rosenthal over Hendricks every day. Yeah. They, like, why would you sign Hendricks for four years when you can get Rosenthal for one? This is a steal. And then he comes in and he does this. Stabs me in the back. <laughs> Oh, so the injuries you're saying don't only hurt the the players; they hurt us as viewers. I am right? hurt. Like, how dare they? I am hurt, Trevor. Uh, so, uh, while we're being lighthearted about the the context of the injury, it certainly is difficult to to take in. I think it's very frustrating. I think we could be in for a long season in that regard. A lot of guys could be going down, getting hurt, even with nicks and bruises. Right? They're going to miss a game here or there. That that all add up over the course of the year. Uh, but we have some other interesting news. Dustin May, fifth starter, David Price, reliever. Yeah. What is your immediate reaction to that news out of L.A.? I think it's good. You know, why stand on on titles or why stand on, you know, past work? Dustin May is ready to go. He's ready to be a starter now. David Price, he is as well. He could also be in a rotation, but only one of them is going to be in the rotation for now. The assumption is that you don't bump a guy like David Price, a guy who's won a Cy Young, a guy who's won a World Series. But why not? If he's not deserving, if, if you think May is more deserving right now, or even if you think that putting May in that spot is better for his long-term development or for the long-term development of the team, then go for it. I'm, I'm glad to see them go kind of counter to counter to what the assumption, counter to assumption and, and sticking price in the pen and good on price for, I mean, I don't, I haven't heard him speak about it, but hearing him talk about other things, I assume he's kind of that he's going to go along with it. He's going to be fine. It's not like he's going to sit out or anything and he's going to, he's going to live with it and they're going to keep him stretched out and he'll probably end up starting some games. Yeah. I think you you hit it right on the head there that price was pretty open to it from, from what I can remember seeing. And we know the Dodgers, we know they're going to shuffle the deck a few times this year. We'll probably see price making starts and we'll probably see may out of the pen and Maybe this is just the best move, and maybe this helps David Price as a guy in his mid-30s at this point who didn't play last year come back. Maybe it helps ramp him up. Maybe it amps up May to be in there to start the year. But May's going to make starts. I think Price is going to make starts. Tony Gonsolin's going to make starts. They'll acquire some guy who will make more starts for them. They're going to shuffle these decks that they have because basically, I said shuffle the deck a moment ago, they have multiple, right? They have so many players going all the way around the roster, up and down, all the way through the minors. All of these guys are going to make starts. I think it's great that Price is kind of embracing it and that the Dodgers are doing something we didn't expect, but that they are very capable of. Of course, ultimately, it's not going to matter because they cannot beat the Rockies. They're still losing 8-4. to 8-4 to four <laughs> ball game, folks. Loving this opening day. You never know what's going to happen. Yeah, the kind of wrench we love to see, right? Rockies in first place. Oh, man, if we get it even for a day, that's 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 wonderful. <laughs> that same group chat I've mentioned, there's a Rockies fan forlorn in there. Uh, we, we, we hope he gets that. 
Uh, we hope you all get that, Rockies fans, <laughs> even for a day, first place there together. Uh, so I think that's a great thing that the Dodgers are doing and how they're moving the pieces there. This one is quirky in like the best way that's going to be so much fun to remember in a few years. It'll probably age better each and every year. The Angels signed Noe Ramirez. Yeah. <laughs> so some context on Noe Ramirez and the Angels. He is who the, the Angels traded away to the Reds in the Rysel Iglesias deal, right? The Reds did that deal. It, it cannot be looked at as anything but a strict, explicit salary dump at this point, right? They trade away Iglesias, their rock side closer for years. They get Noe Ramirez back as the major major league component. And now they release him. And then he just goes back and signs with the Angels. I saw this and left immediately. Yeah, I love it. And I happen to like Ramirez. He's, his numbers against right-handers are solid. There's definitely a use for him in that bullpen. I think he'll probably, I don't think he's, he's, I, I don't think he's on the roster right now. Is he? I don't think so, but I think it might just be a matter of juggling. I assume uh, they're the, giving him some time. I mean, I know they, they optioned Ty Buttry too, which was, was surprising. I mean, they're going to move guys around in that pen. So, but I'm, I'm glad that he's back there. It is fun. I mean, I, we talked about this, I think early on, I, I love to see the guys who've traded for, who were traded for each other on the same team. You know, we have James Paxton and Justice Sheffield and the Mariners. Now we get Noe Ramirez and Rachel Iglesias in the same bullpen even. I mean, that's, that's pretty solid. Yeah, that's that's a lot of fun, that one. And I think it's, like I said, it's going to just age better and better every year. He's not on the roster just yet, Noe Ramirez. But again, we imagine he'll be there at some point. And even if he isn't, if he just comes up at some point and he makes a few appearances, that's going to be great. It's going to be such a, such a good trivia question down the road. Yeah, and actually, if you look at his numbers, he's kind of a quirky uh, statistical thing from last year. His strikeout total is way was way down last year, down from it must have hold on. It was almost in half. Quick. It looks like it was ten and a half Ks per nine, down to six uh, when it comes to K percentage from twenty eight to like sixteen. Right? If you check his splits, he didn't strike out a single left handed batter. <laughs> <laughs> his numbers against righties are still they're down a little bit, but not nearly as much. It's just that he, you know, super small sample. He faced 25 lefties. He didn't strike any of them out. They hit pretty well against him. So he's the same guy he's right. been. He's still the he's, same and guy. And he's a 31-year-old. He's still got something left in the tank, even though he only throws like 90, right? So definitely a guy yeah. who is a change of pace, maybe some funk, maybe some deception, maybe the arm slot, right? All of those things can factor into a player like Noe Ramirez being effective, especially against same-handed same hitters. So that is fascinating. That is That is just such an excellent little footnote to a footnote of a deal right that he didn't strike out a single left-handed batter what a great little pull there on Noe Ramirez uh, but on the flip side we have the Phillies optioning Scott Kingery who we, we talked about again these guys kind of come up these these edge of the roster guys have a way of making their way back into the news and Kingery is one of them now he's back down in the minors uh, hopefully ironing some things out he always seems there always seem to be one particular thing every year well He's not handling the fastballs. He's not handling the positional durability. His eyes were bad. We had to get his eyes straightened out. And and what is it now? Like, how do you kind of process the Phillies signing Scott Kingery to that popular buyout, the the early service time years, the ARB years, give him money, give insecurity, give us some price cost certainty. And then it doesn't work. Like, how do you process Scott Kingery and the Phillies with that situation now? Yeah, it's one of those rare early extension deals that's not looking so great right now. I mean, in some ways, you want to say good on the Phillies for bringing up Hazley and not worrying about service time and just letting him start the season in center field because they believe he's the best option. 
and Kingery, they're paying him either way. So, you know, you, you could keep him on the major league roster rather than pay someone else to be in that spot, but they're sending him down and he's got stuff to work on. He's still, I can't remember how long his extension goes, but it's another five years or something like that. He's signed long-term. I mean, it's not a huge amount of money either way, but it's in an escalating salary and it gets up to six, eight, 10 million year over year. And they really need him to snap in and be at the very least be that first guy off the bench. If he can't even be that guy, they're going to, you know, that's going to be a bummer of a deal. And it, it puts a lot on him as well. Really puts him in the spotlight. For sure. And I think that's maybe why they sent him to the minors. Like, just iron some of this out at the alt site. See if you can get it back together. Because if the options work out on that deal, it is another five years. And, yeah, you, you see a player sign a contract that pays him uh, an AAV of $4 million. It's six years and $24 million total. Yeah, you look at it immediately. You're like, oh, it's going to be nearly impossible for that to not really be worth it. And yet here we are. There is, I think, a question here that maybe is better suited for a longer discussion on another day, but there is a question of the Phillies' development and the success they have or haven't had when it comes to these kinds of players, really any kind of player. Not a lot of homegrown talent there who are tallying up the wins, which kind of makes me wonder and question, what do we do with Spencer Howard working out of the pen for 2021? That's what Dave Dombrowski said this week about the Phillies and their top pitching prospect. Does this have long-term implications? Do you think it it becomes harder to stretch him out full-time and get him success as a starter for Spencer Howard? I don't think it does. We've seen a number of pitchers take this route. And in some ways, I like it. I like that they're just willing to commit to him being in the pen and, and letting him get used to that role. It means extracting less value from his prime years, from his prime cheap years. You know, ideally he's a starter when he's making the minimum and he's throwing 150 innings, not, you know, 50 innings out of the pen. And then, you know, once you, by the time you get him in the rotation, then he's starting to go through arbitration and that's when his salaries are going to skyrocket. So there are financial considerations there, but I don't think it's a horrible move. Like I said, we have seen guys over the years, you know, many guys move from the bullpen to the rotation. It's not something I worry about so much. I think that the clarity of role is maybe even going to be helpful to him. That's kind of interesting because we've talked about the game moving really toward positionless baseball, but having a role also has value in that. Like we've also mentioned that knowing what you're doing when you show up to the park every day really does provide some stability that can really be useful, especially for a guy like Spencer Howard, perhaps who was a bit of a pop-up prospect from a smaller time program and really kind of broke out all at once. It's like, you know, there might be more development necessary for that player that he might still need to cook a little bit before he's really ready to be out there. Uh, so I think that's a, a good option for him, even though sometimes we, while we do have the examples, the guys come back from the, the pen to be rotation pieces full time. It can be really difficult, right? It can be a long road that really does maybe pigeonhole them, which maybe that's what the Dodgers are trying to avoid with May. But uh, all of that, of course, is just speculation. And it, it does seem like it could be a net positive for Spencer Howard and the Phillies. Uh, there was uh, one other big extension, relatively speaking, right? David Fletcher signed just before we came on today uh, with the Los Angeles Angels. What a guy. <laughs> what a guy. Five-year, $26 million. 
He's only two years of service, two and a half, not quite to three years of service time yet. So he was still pre-arb. This gives the Angels another couple of years of control. It looks like escalating salaries beginning beginning this year. So this was the year when he was set for the minimum, I think. But now he'll make 20, two million this year. Then he'll jump to four next year, six million in twenty three and twenty four, and then six point five in his final season. That's those are really reasonable rates. That's a good deal for the Angels. I mean, he's not a power guy, so he's not someone who's going to really fill up the he's not a guy who's really going to fill up the score sheet in a way that would benefit him tremendously financially. So, you know, we saw a similar kind of thing with the twins pitcher, Randy uh, Dobnak. I I wrote about him. Yeah. We saw a similar kind of thing with Randy Dobnak, you know, a guy who's a non-traditional path, a little bit older. He gets some locked in, locked in money, some guaranteed money. He's, you know, set for life now. And, here the Angels and the Twins in that case uh, get some get some financial certainty and probably get him at a bargain. I mean, there's always this there is the Scott Kingery possibility, it's right, great. where he doesn't quite totally pan out. But it's but you do like the gamble here. It's not a huge amount of money either way, and you think he's a guy who like Kingery can move around the diamond. He runs well, so you're betting that worst case he he kind of falls into a bench role, and best case he's your everyday second baseman or shortstop, and he's he's well worth the money. Yeah, and the contract is very similar to Kingery's overall, actually, but he has way more major league success at this point across three different seasons. Uh, a guy who probably won't be somebody who develops a ton of power, right? But as a guy with such a solid foundation with a hit tool, really does give you a really, really comfortable floor. Uh, you know, maybe he'll be a bit of a Swiss Army knife for the Angels. He's kind of been that to this point. Maybe he settles into one spot while filling in for others as guys get breathers throughout the course of the year. Seems like a really solid deal for both the team and the player at that point. Uh, so we really have just a couple of other things here to get into. One, last week we brought up uh, Nicole Cahill's piece on concussions. This week, I think what I'm going to suggest everybody to do is read Nick Pollock's piece on the site about whether or not Jacob deGrom is actually good. It will be a satisfying article for you one way or another. Here's my question. Is Nick Pollock actually good? Maybe they have, a, have an article on that. Well, I think if it goes anything like the Jacob DeGrom article, we'll have a very quick answer. Uh, <laughs> so definitely check that out and enjoy it, right? Embrace that, that particular moment as we've, uh, we've kind of pressed home here with a lot of the sentiment going around baseball, good and bad, today and through this opening weekend. Uh, TC, where can the good people find you? online and uh what have you been up to lately what can they read from you i've got a piece up today actually about the uh about the cubs trying to put cubs fans fears at ease it's a good thing that rizzo and bryant and Baez aren't signed yet so go read that piece it's called what is it called it's called trust uncle jed trust uncle jed gotta trust jed hoyer he knows what he's doing and those guys are gonna be okay we're in a good spot so go read that put your mind at ease uh you can find me mlb trade rumors i'm gonna have a off-season outlook piece on the Dodgers coming up in a couple of days, and then in a piece uh, looking at the Tigers off-season uh, in, in another couple of days. So check those out and find me at, on Twitter, TC Zanka, T-C-Z-E-N-C-K-A. Nice. I uh, I had just written up Bryce Harper. I think he's going to have the second-best career uh, season of his career to this point. Don't Ooh. know that he'll be a 10-win player to top his MVP season in 2015. 
but I think he could be better than what he's ever done else otherwise uh, through through his major league career. And of course, you can find me at Tim Jackson says on Twitter. You can find us both at BreakingPodPL on Twitter. You could email us at BreakingPodPL at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you could, if you would be so wonderful to as uh, so as to rate us five stars and comment uh, in the pod as you listen, we would just uh, love you to pieces for that. And it would help us keep being able to talk to you because we love it so far. And really, we can't wait to see everybody next week. So that'll do it for us. We'll see you then. Everyone have the best week you can. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Opening day.